Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everyone. I'm Nadia Sirota, host of Q2 Music's Meet the Composer. Season three of the show starts next week. Five episodes digging into the ideas and issues that perplex and divide and inspire composers, performers, and listeners. But before that, we're doing a little blast from the past. We're revisiting the original radio program from WNYC called Meet the Composer, which was hosted by Tim Page. Uh, This is Tim Page. Over the course of his career as a critic and as a radio host, including his time on our show's namesake, He sparked conversations with so many performers and creators. He's an expert, and he's also just a great person to share ideas and experiences with. So, here we go. Okay. (laughs) How did you get so interested and so expert about classical music? Well, it's strange, you know? I mean, the the honest answer is I think I was self-medicating from about two. I was sort of out of control as a child. I, I was much later diagnosed with a form of autism. I found very early, like about two or three, that if I put on particular recordings, I would calm down. I really liked slow-changing, repetitive music. Things that seemed to unfold in time. They calmed me down and they fascinated me and really kind of hypnotized me. Uh, fr- from then on, I, I, I honestly think in a strange way it was music that taught me about human emotions for the simple reason that I didn't really understand what was just being said to me. But if you put it in music, everything blossomed. One of the ways that I learned to understand my own feelings was by going and sitting at a typewriter and just typing until I zeroed in on what it was I felt about this. And then all of a sudden somebody wanted to pay me for it, even though I think it was $15 I got paid when I was at college. And much to my surprise, I I became a music critic. You I had a radio show at Columbia called Music in Changing Parts, which was taken from a Philip Glass title. Yes, we were a college radio station, but we also had the location that reached something like 20 million people, and there were all these amazing composers in the New York area, and I found that they were more than happy to give me their tapes and do interviews with me because, you know, no other radio station was playing this then. 
I'm so inspired by Tim. Here's this Columbia kid who's got what could be, you know, just another college radio show. But Tim takes it completely above and beyond, landing interviews with some of the most influential musicians of his time. And then in 1981, I got an invitation from WNYC to basically do the same sort of show. That show was the original radio show, Meet the Composer. I did that from 1981 to 1992. Tim's um, Meet the Composer featured conversations with towering musical figures of his time. From a staggering range of backgrounds, Dizzy Gillespie, Aaron Copeland, John Cage, Stephen Sondheim. I interviewed an awful lot of people and gave a lot of radio premieres of all sorts of There is so much incredible audio archive from that show. And over this next week, we're going to take a closer look at a few of those episodes. But a little more on that later. Since his 1980s radio show, Tim has gone on to have a lengthy career as an influential critic, writer, and educator. More recently, music has taken on a new, almost medicinal significance. We spoke to Tim as he was recovering from a subdural hematoma, a very serious brain injury. An acute subdural hematoma such as I had is about the deadliest, you know, among, say, your general tumor, aneurysm, or cerebral hemorrhage. There's a great deal of pressure on your brain, but it's not actually in your brain. So it's squeezing on your brain and doing all sorts of things to it. But if you survive, you are more likely to at least recover some kind of sensibility. Even though Tim survived his particular hematoma, his recovery was not necessarily a breeze. In the days after his operation, he was pretty much knocked out cold. I couldn't do anything. I mean, I was just sleeping 12, 13, 14 hours a day, and then sometimes taking a nap on top of that. I'd give an answer that I used to do, like, hey, you want to meet for for dinner at 8 o'clock? I'd say, oh, yeah, that sounds wonderful, because I'd want to see the person. And then by 8 o'clock, I wanted nothing more but to be in bed and ready to sleep for a good amount of time. Tim, who was accustomed to writing three or 4,000 words a day, was having trouble getting anything done. I've used the analogy of having a hard drive that's still pretty damn good, but it can only be accessed for a short time, and my software is fouled up beyond all recognition. I think I've had that computer before. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean. So if your hard drive can only be accessed for a short time, um, how has this changed how you listen to, say, a full symphony? I'm finding that these big, complicated pieces, Mahler symphonies, things like that, pieces that I know pretty well but not completely well, I now sort of shut my eyes and I listen to them straight through. And I swear I can almost feel them building neural pathways. Um, Are these pathways something that you would have noticed before, or is is this a new phenomenon? I don't know if I can give you an honest answer on that. I'm not 
entirely sure of a lot of the things that I felt in the past. I can just say that, say, if I put on something like La Boheme, and, and no disrespect to La Boheme or Carmen, but these are pieces that I've, you know, known completely and utterly from performances and recordings since I was 10 or 11. And I don't get the same sense that I'm rebuilding as, say, I do with something that I know pretty well, but not completely well, which feels almost like the mental equivalent of a muscle-building exercise. Does that make any sense? It does, it does. But, but on the other hand, there are still weights that are, are too heavy for me. I don't think I could, say, listen to a brand-new Elliot Carter piece or, you know, a vast modern opera and really follow it necessarily all the way through because I, I, I fear I'd become rather tired and i just need to go to sleep, whereas the pieces, which are sort of halfway in between, are just healthy to me, and I swear I feel like I'm just a little bit smarter after I've been through one of these pieces than I was before I started listening. So over the next week, we're going to revisit four interviews from Tim's days hosting Meet the Composer with Otto Luning. Oh, I loved Otto. It's a very strange and wonderful story. Libby Larson. That's a good and confusing question even to me. Leonard Bernstein. That was a very hard one to set up. Do you have a whole series planned out? I do know what I want my next opera to be. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and John Cage. I remember actually doing the Cage interview. He got quite cross with me. Tim, it doesn't matter where you are. There always are sounds to hear. Stay with us this week for those throwback mini-episodes and join us next week for Season 3 of Meet the Composer. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Special thanks to Tim Page and the WNYC Archives for making this show possible. And many thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. This episode was produced by Nadia Sirota, Mead Bernard, Alex Overington, and John Hanrahan, with help from Carol Ann Chung and Donnie Green. Meet the Composer's executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Meet the Composer is available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You didn't notice any anguish of waiting. Never noticed you were waiting alone. That's the show for the fools in the palace. Waiting. Waiting alone. That's the show.